Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you've been enjoying the show, please do consider contributing to our crowdfunding campaign on the website Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, you can get a great range of rewards, the best of which is a collection of magazine pictures from Simon, myself and previous co-hosts of the show. We'd also like to give a shout out to our most recent Patreon, who is Tom Wentworth. So Tom is an aspiring screenwriter. His most recent project is a monologue called The Real Deal for the BBC4, BBC America series Crip Tales. And he also has a background doing some journalism as well. Thanks very much for supporting the show, Tom. Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to Phoebe Hurst, the managing editor of Vice UK. Rachel and I spoke with Phoebe about working at Vice, about dealing with new writers, and about modulating the famous Vice voice. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, Phoebe, and welcome to Always Take Notes. Can we start with your work at Vice? What does the average day of a managing editor look like? Yeah, good question, because I think... Yeah, something I find really fun about my role is it's very varied um, and it involves a lot of different kind of facets of being an editor. Um, so, yeah, our kind of day starts with a morning meeting. Um, so before COVID, we would obviously do this in the office. Um, but now, like lots of people, we're confined to our homes. Um, so that morning meeting is really just um, a time for all the editorial team advice to come together and just talk about what we're working on for the day. Um, so usually one of my colleagues will lead this um, and we'll kind of just go around and catch up on like, you know, big pieces that people are doing, what they expect to publish today. Um, and then we kind of break off um, for the side of the team who cover more of the kind of newsy stuff to discuss what they'll be covering. Because often if, if there's something that's kind of like breaking news or something we've spotted that morning, we'll want to like talk about how we can cover that from like a vice angle. So I guess as the managing editor kind of in those meetings, I'll... Um, be the one who's kind of like figuring out, you know, what, what do we need to publish today? What are we going to be holding for tomorrow? And just having that kind of like bird's eye view over the week ahead. So yeah, that's kind of how the, the mornings start. And then from there, um, I do a lot of like editing and commissioning still, which is something I really enjoy. Um, so often I'll be, um, you know, looking at a piece from a freelancer or editing pieces um, from the staff writers who I manage as well. Um, so we have three staff writers advice at the moment. Um, so I'll be kind of looking at their work um, if they're having something that is being handed in on that day um, and kind of suggesting edits and things like that. So, yeah, that, that obviously takes up like quite a bulk of the day doing that um, part of it. And then I guess other stuff can be sort of like planning meetings, you know, thinking about any big campaigns or like um, series that we might want to do on Vice and like, you know, talking to the other senior editors about that, too. So, yeah, like kind of lots of stuff going on. But I guess the core is kind of that like planning element and then also doing the, you know, the editing as well and like commissioning too. And Phoebe, what's the division between London and the rest of the world? And are you are you managing mm. editor for the UK or is it wider? And how does the interface between your sort of empire and, and the rest of Vice work? Yeah, I think that's a good question because Vice on the outside is obviously like this quite huge um, entity. And we do have like offices all over the world. I've kind of lost track of how many places we have offices. Um, but yeah, the London office um, is where I'm based. And yeah, I'm the, the managing editor of the UK arm of Vice. But I do have kind of like constant contact with like my managing editor, like counterpart in the US as well. And we're obviously, you know, we do kind of weekly calls with the US team to see what they have coming up to, especially on the, the news side of things, because obviously there can be a lot of crossover there. 
but yeah, I'm I'm just looking after like the the UK stuff. Um, but um, it's really exciting to like see what the other kind of offices are working on as well, because we do have people kind of based everywhere. And in recent years, we've been trying to improve like the way that we translate articles as well. So if there's been like an article that's gone viral in Italy and it seems like it will have universal appeal, we'll like try and think of ways to to get that translated and turned into another piece for like an English speaking audience. Um, so yeah, I think that's like one of the benefits of working in an organization that does have that like global outlook. And in terms of the things that you're commissioning, what are you looking for in an article? I think I read somewhere that the 26 of Vice readers are under the age of 24. How much do you bear that sort of thing in mind when when you're commissioning? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure of like the specific demographics of how old our audience is, but I know our audience is definitely like millennials and um, Gen Z as well. So that's, I think feel like that is really important to us for everything that we're covering. Because um, I, I think it's kind of quite rare as well. Like there aren't really that many um, media organizations that really can cater to like the younger audience like we do. Um, so it's definitely at the heart of everything we try and cover. Like, you know, if we're covering a huge topic like um, coronavirus, like unemployment, then we want to think like, well, what's the way in that matters to our readers? So we might look at something like uh, like the recent like ONS figures that showed that like young people are more likely to lose their jobs during COVID. You know, just like thinking of ways that make it interesting for like someone who's actually reading it, who is in their like, you know, 20s or early 30s. Um, Because, yeah, that's really what Vice is about. I think just like having this youth lens on stories and, you know, showing like a voice that you might not get if you're reading the same story on like The Guardian or, you know, The Times or something like that. And how is that reflected in the demographic of the people in the offices? Mm. Um, we understand that the the age of the staff is average age in their twenties as well. I mean, I've, I've always been quite fascinated. Like, what happens when you get too old? Like, are, you, <laughs> are you are you cold, or like how 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 does that work? Yeah, when you reach thirty, you have to like go outside and just quietly be taken away to a farm somewhere. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it is like a young editorial team, definitely compared to. I guess, some of the more established like um, news organizations and media organizations. And I think that's, you know, that's like a strength, really. Like, it's really cool to have lots of young people like doing interesting things in an editorial sense. Um, And it's something that, you know, lots of people at Vice, me included, like I've been at Vice for five years now. um, And lots of my colleagues have been here for like a number of years as well. So I think we are, you know, we're all inevitably getting older, (laughs) but at the same time, we, you know, we're really keen to like work with new writers and we always try and like, well, before coronavirus, we would try and offer like work experience and things like this, that when we could. Um, So I think we, yeah, we definitely want to like make sure that we're still serving young people whilst also knowing that like, you know, some of us might be, you know, like not so young anymore, but still wanting to do that. Who's the oldest person? I don't know. I don't know if I would like to out them <laughs> as the oldest person <laughs> at Vice. Um, but no, there's a whole range of like people who work at Vice. You know, Vice isn't just like the editorial team. Like obviously we have loads of different departments as well and, you know, lots of different people of different ages. Um, so while we're definitely like a youth kind of focused place, it's not like, you know, it's not like we ban old people or anything. <laughs> <laughs> no entry over a certain threshold yeah um, exactly <laughs> you mentioned working with new writers um kind of firstly how do you go about finding them is it just sort of them pitching to you and also once you've commissioned them how do you go about sort of developing them and getting them to the point where the article is ready to be published yeah pitching is a really 
big one, I think. Um, I've definitely started having like good relationships with writers who just kind of pitched me who I didn't know about, first of all, and they they were kind of at the beginning of their careers and they just obviously turned out to be good writers and we've like maintained that relationship. Um, so yeah, I think pitching is a really big one. And I think um, because we are, you know, quite open to like new voices and we want to make sure that we're getting like a range of people represented on Vice, I think editors here are quite open to, you know, working with new writers, maybe in a way that other places wouldn't be just because of, you know, like traditions or how they work. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I'm always open to like hearing pitches from new writers. Um, I think Twitter is a really big one as well. Like as anyone who's listening, who's like in journalism will know, like Twitter is definitely, you know, it's like the, the water cooler where everybody goes, who's kind of in this industry. So I think if you are like a new writer and you are kind of building up bylines, um, it's really good to have like a Twitter profile to be sharing that stuff and, you know, kind of in those conversations, um, whilst obviously it's no substitute for actually, you know, doing the work and like, um, having good ideas and being able to write well, like it's definitely useful in terms of visibility for new editors, I think. Um, so yeah, I think Twitter is really big as well, just to like get a, a feel of who's out there and who's doing new stuff. Um, and then what else? I kind of try and do things with like students when I can, like when those opportunities are there. So at Vice, we've done a few things with like um, some universities who are kind of like based in London and doing journalism stuff. So we'll try and do like talks with the, their students um, just to give them an idea of like what Vice is looking for. Because um, I definitely see it as like a two-way street, really. Like we we need new ideas and we need writers who are good and like the writers who are out there and want to pitch device need that as well. So it's definitely like something that can go both ways, I think. And how much content are you putting out a day? We've, we've got this extraordinary stat that we found that uh, across Vice is putting out 1,700 things. <laughs> um, how is it all coordinated? And are you aiming for a certain tempo or is it depending what's going on in the news cycle and stuff like that? And how, I suppose what's the division between quite reactive sort of on the day stuff and, and longer projects yeah I'm not sure like exactly how many pieces Vice puts out kind of across every platform in every territory um, but I know in the UK we we kind of have a, a division between um, the the news pieces that we're putting out um, so for new stuff um, often that can be kind of more reactionary things because we might see um, like, for example, today it was in the news that QAnon has been like um, banned from Facebook. So that's something that's kind of relevant to our readers. So um, we did a piece about that, which was um, kind of a bit more reactionary, but we got kind of Ruby, a lot Lavinia who wrote it, got um, comment from Hope Not Hate and, and an academic. So, you know, that's kind of a quick turnaround piece um, that would go up in the morning, but it's not, you know, uh, something without substance there. So we we usually have kind of one or two pieces like that that are kind of faster turnaround um, a day for the news side. And then um, maybe like three more that are more, you know, longer, like reported features. Um, and then um, for the kind of lifestyle and culture side, that's, you know, those kind of stories tend to be less like, you know, breaking news and timely. So um, that can kind of vary depending on, on what stuff we have coming up. Um, but yeah, it's definitely like um, a, a lot of stuff that we put out every day, I think, um, especially because our team isn't like huge. There's about a dozen of us, I think. Um, so yeah, we we do try to plan ahead and like think about the best times to to publish stuff and and try and have that, you know, look at the week ahead, ahead and how we can do that. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what we aim for each day. And obviously we discuss that when we're doing our, our morning meetings and things like that. So how many of those pieces, how many would you be sort of juggling at one time and what system do you have for keeping track of everything? 
Yeah, we have a couple of systems. We have this um, program called DeskNet that I don't know if it's, you know, how, how well used it is in other places as well, but it's basically just like a big planning board that you can kind of like assign stories to and, you know, move them around when they're they're going around. And then in terms of like me personally, like managing, um, you know, editing as well as doing that planning stuff and the more strategic stuff, I feel like I like to kind of break my day up a bit and just see the morning as the time when I'm kind of like editing pieces or um, working with staff writers if they're doing a piece that needs to come out that morning. So kind of the the stuff that takes like a bit more concentration, I try to do first thing. Um, and then the the other stuff that's more like planning, try and kind of do that in the second part of the day. But obviously that can change depending on things that are coming through and, and all of that kind of stuff. And what has happened with the kind of course and progress of Vice in recent years. I mean, I remember, say, about five years ago, not just with Vice, but with BuzzFeed and other, and Vox and other sort of digital uh, media platforms, really having a day, lots of investment, lots of resources, lots of hiring. And then, you know, there's been elements of retrenchment and stuff like that elsewhere. How How is the amount of, I suppose, the amount of money available for the work you're doing now compared to what it was over the, you know, the five years that you've been at Vice? Yeah, it's a good question because I think, yeah, the kind of, um, you know, the burst of like new media, like unicorn, that era of like new websites coming through, I think is definitely petered out a bit now. And like Vice definitely isn't alone. Like BuzzFeed has also suffered for from a similar kind of thing. Um, so I think there is definitely a difference in terms of like how Vice and other sites like it are viewed, you know, more widely in media. Like it's, it's maybe not viewed as like, um, you know, the same site that it was back then. But I think in terms of like, day-to-day of what we do on the editorial team I'm not sure if that much has changed because you know we're still back then we were still committed to doing stories that like speak to our readers and you know good reporting and thinking of interesting ways into stories that other people have done and we're still doing largely the same work now um I guess changes more recently have been kind of you know coronavirus related like we did have some issues with our budget earlier this year but you know currently we're still we're able to publish all the stories that we want to and it's kind of yeah we're still working to those same standards do you mind me asking um how much you pay your freelancers and what the what the rates are yeah so the minimum rate would be 25p per word um but that can obviously change depending on um like the amount of reporting and work needed for a story so that's obviously negotiable um but yeah that that's kind of the rate that we start with and has that been the same over recent years or are, are, are the sort of belts tighter now than they were before? Um, no, that's um, like the, the word rate is something that we kind of continue monitoring and making sure it's in line with like, you know, benchmarking with other other organisations. Um, so, yeah, it hasn't like gone down um, since I've started working at Vice at least. Um, and it's something that we will continue looking at because, um, yeah, obviously the freelancers are really important to us. And we want to make sure they're they're being paid fairly for their work. And what can you take it up to? I mean, what's the sort of upper threshold with that? Um, I'm not sure what the upper threshold It's really hard because it like depends on what kind of piece it is and like, you know, the time frame for a piece as well. So it's really like, yeah, it just really depends like piece to piece. So it's hard to say. Could I ask sort of more generally about the voice advice? I know that the kind of style of journalism, gonzo-ish is called immersionism advice, but how long did it take you to get used to writing in the Vice style? And if you can try and describe it, how would you do that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's another good question because, yeah, it, I think Vice does have quite a specific style and it still does. I think even more so when I started writing for Vice, which was like 
um, I actually started when I was an intern, so like back in uni. So when I was in my second year of university, I did um, an internship at Vice, and that was like quite a few years ago now. So I think the the Vice like brand that people think of, the kind of you know stereotypical like Gonzo, really immersing yourself in these mad situations, like that was much more at the forefront of what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, back then it was it was much more like that. So I don't know. I think like any you know any kind of learning a a writing style I think I just read a lot of the website like you know just reading every single article comparing you know one writer's style to another writer's style and seeing what kind of like the common threads um there are that are there um so I think that really helped and yeah I think the main thing is just you know trying to have that like authenticity trying to have that humor I think that makes a vice style as well um but not being like too earnest, I think as well. Um, and yeah, just making sure that like, you know what the story is and you're speaking to the people who are kind of at the center of that story. So whether it's like a really wild, you know, event that you went to or whether it's a more serious, like focused news story, just making sure you have their voices in there and they're being centered, I think is really good. Um, but yeah, I think Vice is also interesting too, because we definitely allow space for, writers to kind of have their own voice as well and you know we don't want everybody to sound exactly the same like we're quite happy for for writers if they're you know if they're good and they have a strong voice we want to like develop that and and make sure it's something that shines through. Can we talk about um, developing new writers and how you know you, you mentioned a bit about you know the, the willingness that Vice has to deal with first timers and things like that how much time are you you kind of happy to give to something like this and do you have a process for I don't know what the right phrase is, breaking someone in or, you know, kind of training, as it were, to, to get them to do that. And maybe if you give a couple of examples of a, a way that that's worked very well and then maybe in another situation that's been more challenging. I mean, I think it's it's so interesting because no one ever tells you how to do this, right, yeah. often. That's so much the experience of freelance writing. Mm. Um, you know, the, what, is it, what does it look like from your side and what are the, what are the to-dos and what are the to-don'ts? To yeah. Yeah, I think it it is really like I found that when I well, definitely when I started freelancing, um, I had no idea, like I didn't really know what a pitch was or like who you who you needed to send it to or like what the the courtesy was there. So it yeah, it's one of those funny things that kind of when you know, you know, but before that it's just like being completely <laughs> blocked outside. Um so yeah, I guess the process in in terms of like making sure a new writer can kind of have those opportunities. Um I don't know, it, it's hard because um you you kind of need to just like have a lot of resilience when you're like a new freelancer or or someone who's a student who wants to pitch in terms of just trying again and again like your your first pitch probably won't be quite right um but you know you, you keep doing it and you keep reading the, the website and you'll kind of learn what what's going to work um so I guess in terms of like what we or what I, I know I try to do and lots of my colleagues do as editors is just you know trying to be patient with these new writers who you know, their, their first piece of their file might not be quite right, but they have that enthusiasm there. And they, they're obviously, you know, they understand what the vice kind of tone of voice is. Um, kind of going back to what we were saying before, like if somebody kind of understands what vice is about and kind of wants to really do those kind of stories, then um, I know that I'd definitely be really keen to hear from them and keen to kind of work with them in a way. Um, but yeah, for like the, the nuts and bolts of how you kind of can break in a new writer I guess it's just the quite boring stuff of you know they'll when their their pitch is sent in I just 
you know, try and give some productive feedback, although it's sometimes it's a bit hard to go very in depth because of the number of pitches that you receive. But yeah, trying to give productive feedback. And then um, if I have commissioned something from someone new, I'll try and give really detailed edits um, that are helpful, uh, which is, I think, the most helpful thing. I know that when I was starting out, it was just really, really good to get feedback on anything, even if it was quite harsh and it meant I had to like rewrite everything. Like I think that's the most useful thing and most valuable thing you can have when you're new is just having edits that are helpful and suggestions. Um, so yeah, I think that that's really important. So I'm guessing that takes, I mean, you're taking the time to explain why you've made the changes or why you've made the suggestions that you have. Yeah, yeah, because that's, yeah, like you said, that's the other thing. It does take a lot of time to do this. Um, so it's definitely like a decision you kind of have to make, you know, if I'm looking at all the pictures that came in, you know, in a week, I'll kind of have to decide, okay, this one might take a bit longer to work with, but, you know, this person seems like they have a really good idea. They seem really keen to go out and speak to people, um, you know, that they're, they're going to file on time. Like we can take a chance on that. And yeah, we've done that before with previous people who have pitched device or who maybe came on board as like work experience students back when we were able to do that. And it's been really nice to kind of watch them like grow as writers, I guess. Um, and yeah, and that kind of came down to them just being really enthusiastic and wanting to pitch and wanting to to write these stories. Um, so yeah, I think I think Vice is a good place for that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it does it does take time for sure. What kind of volume of pitches are you getting a week? And are you are you the person? Are you like the the person that say if there are listeners who are interested in in getting in touch with an idea, they should come to you? How much of this stuff do you get? Yeah, I'm definitely not the the only person. Um, <laughs> my inbox would go mad if, if that was the case. Um, no, all the editors on the the vice team, um, everybody receives pitches, and you know everybody has a, a kind of different beat or a different interest. Um, so if you're kind of following all my colleagues on like Twitter and looking at the stuff that they're publishing, um, then you can get like a really good idea of which person your pitch might sit best with. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in pitching, I would probably say to do that first, just do a bit of research about who who's publishing what and where their interests are. Um, so yeah, we, we all kind of receive pitches and, and have writers that we work with. Um, everyone on the team also writes as well. So I think everybody's got that balance between commissioning and editing and also writing pieces too. Um, so yeah, I couldn't say like what the, the volume is that we get in total. Um, but the pitches are something that we review every week and, and yeah, we're regularly looking at the stuff people are sending in. Uh, this is a great segue to my next question, which is about your own writing. <laughs> I mean, you, in your sort of breakdown of your day, you talk mostly about commissioning and sort of liaising with other staff members and, and, you know, all the sort of administrative, administrative and editing side of stuff. How much time would you get to spend in an average week on your own journalism? Probably not as much time as I would like to. I don't know. It's really strange because I really love editing and commissioning and working with writers. Um, and I really enjoy all the other kind of, I guess, like admin related things that kind of go into like running or helping to run an editorial team. Um, so, yeah, it kind of goes in waves, really. I feel like towards the beginning of the year, I was writing a bit more, but then because of like coronavirus related stuff and, and kind of other shifts, I've ended up doing um, a bit more kind of editing and commissioning now. But yeah, I think I would like to have, I know I've been listening to other um, episodes you've done with other journalists who have a much more like rigorous way of like, I don't know, doing, you know, writing on this day and then editing on that day. I'd like to maybe get more towards that um, because yeah, it's really fun editing other people's work, but I do miss kind of doing a bit more of the writing as well. So I think I need to get better at doing that. 
So we wanted to dive in to talk about Pret in a moment, but there was just one kind of broader question about the business model of Vice. How how does it work? Um, how how is it funded via advertising licensing? How does the the thing kind of work financially? I mean, I I just work on the editorial team, so I don't have that much okay. um, insight into kind of the the breakdown of of the business side of things because um, they're they're both kept quite separate, obviously. Um, but yeah, as, as far as I can kind of explain it, it would be, yeah, kind of advertising and then Vice has other arms to the company as well um, that do that kind of stuff too. Diving into the Pret piece, you wrote a sort of, I guess, an oral history of how the how the coffee shop came to take over basically London. Mm. Um, how did that idea come about and how did you report it? Were Pret difficult to get access to um, and how many people did you interview and sort of the whole nuts and bolts of how you put that piece together? Yeah, that was an interesting piece to put together. Um, I think it came about because it was sort of the end of 2019, so end of the decade. So we were kind of brainstorming of ideas to do with, you know, like defining moments or like cultural kind of touchstones and stuff from the decade. Um, and I was thinking in the food space and I just thought that Pret seems to be the one, especially in London, like this ubiquitous thing that you really can't escape um, it's obviously changed a bit now due to COVID and Pret's reign seems to be over a bit. Um, but yeah, I was kind of just thinking about that and doing a bit of research and I felt like I hadn't really read the kind of oral history of Pret really. Like even though they they are so popular and there's, you know, shops everywhere, like you don't um, often see that many stories that interview people who work there or kind of get into the heart of how that business works. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of the starting off point. And I quite like stories that have, um, you know, lots of different elements to them. And I think this one was interesting because it involved uh, going to like the prep head office, which was really surreal anyway, because it, yeah, it's just, just quite a strange office going to their test kitchen um, and also uh, interviewing people who actually work there. So it was like a whole range of kind of voices and things going on. Um, so it was really fun to do. Can I ask a really kind of geeky magazine writing question about that, which is about the the uh, first person strand through that? So mm. I was interested, yeah, in the kind of how the, the, that story was was structured. In that, you know, it, it's kind of a, there is a genre of this thing, like the, the the profile of the unsung British institution. So that the long read of the Guardian did Aldi and and stuff like that. Mm. I think it's a really interesting form. And I was interested that you have this fairly consistent and pretty sort of strong first person through that. Is that is that the vice kind of requirement or voice that Rachel was touching on earlier? Or did you decide that that was the the way to do it? You know, how much of that was you thought like we need to do this in a vicey way? And how much was it, you know, that you just felt this was the the approach that the subject merited? Yeah, I don't I don't think it's so much of a, a requirement that every vice story needs to have a first person, but I think the requirement is definitely that um, there needs to be original reporting. You have to like go to where the story is and really bring people along. Um, so I think with this story, because it kind of starts with me going to this um, really mad Christmas launch part, like Christmas sandwich launch party that Pret um, did at one of its um, shops in central London. Um, so that kind of um, event to go to something like that, it would have maybe felt a bit dry or a bit removed, I think, to not have that first person element. Like I think you kind of need you need to see it through someone's eyes. Um, and the, the same thing with going to the, the test kitchen as well. Like you kind of want to know what is it like to sit and try this new vegan egg mayonnaise sandwich that hasn't come out yet. And like, you know, what does it taste like? What's it like sitting there? Like you, you kind of want to have that, that personal element to it. 
Um, but at the same time, I don't think with a vice story, we never want that personal element to take over too much if it's something that you're, you know, you're reporting about Pret and like the phenomena of Pret. It's not just about me going and enjoying a sandwich. Like you have to have a balance there. Um, and I think because it is in that kind of magazine-y style as well, it it kind of works because, you know, you're it's like it's like the kind of long form narrative style of writing too. So I think it it works for that piece. Um, and there are loads of other examples of the site on the site of other people who've done that kind of style as well. I love that after all the test kitchen sort of not shenanigans but experiments. I guess <laughs> it was like the chicken Caesar baguette is still the fa- is still everyone's favorite, or the yeah. tuna mayo, or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, despite all their best efforts. Yeah, which I feel like says a lot about yeah what people like to eat. <laughs> Definitely. Um, how long would you take to spend to work on a piece like that? Yeah, it's kind of difficult to say because I guess. Um, as an editor, you have a lot of other things going on as well. I mean, obviously writers do too and freelance writers definitely do as well. Um, but I guess my responsibilities, you know, to like commissioning other stuff and, um, you know, doing, uh, edits on other pieces mean that I might have just like worked on it for a few days and then had to do some other stuff for a few days. So it's, it's hard to say like how long in total that piece took. I think from memory, it did take a bit longer because it took a while going back and forth with prayer and having them say that, yes, I could come and I could bring a photographer and then changing dates and all of that kind of stuff that happens. Um, and I think it took me a while as well to like source um, the people that I wanted to speak to because some of the people who worked there were worried about speaking to the press. Um, so yeah, it can it can take a while, I think. Um, but definitely when we're, when we're planning stories and commissioning stuff um, at Vice, we're always like aware that if we want to get these kind of good stories with good access, then sometimes they can take more than a week. So we're happy to kind of let writers take a bit longer if they need it. And who edits you? <laughs> yeah. And, and I suppose as a follow up to that, what was the process? Like how many, I know this is again, really geeky process stuff, but it fascinates me. How, how many drafts did it go through? What was, did you file an outline beforehand? Did you try and get a kind of clean first shot at it? Like all, all that, all that piece, given that you are the managing editor. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would have pitched that piece kind of in the same way that everybody else pitches their pieces to be discussed by. Um, so Jamie Clifton, who's the editor in chief, um, he kind of, I guess, has final say over, um, you know, what we're commissioning and all of that, that kind of aspect. Um, so yeah, he edited this piece as well. Um, I think it had, I can't remember how many kind of changes it had. I think it had a few changes obviously before we published. Um, but yeah, Jamie would be the one to, to edit my work. Um, but yeah, in terms of like the, like average number of drafts a piece might go through, like, um, I think if it's a, a long feature that someone has written, like whether they're on staff or a freelancer, I think it would be normal for there to be at least one round of edits um, or, you know, discussion about maybe you need to change the intro slightly or can we bring this voice more, you know, to the fore, that that kind of thing. Um, so I think that that would probably be the average, but obviously with longer and more complex pieces, it can take longer. Everyone needs a good editor. Yeah, definitely. Which I say as someone who frequently sees my own work turned into to much better than it was when I found it um <laughs> would you ever do a um follow-up piece given the sort of threats to perhaps ubiquity as you as you mentioned yeah I think I think I haven't thought of that until you mentioned it but yeah that's a good idea <laughs> maybe I'll I'll mention that to the rest of the team this week back to the test kitchen <laughs> yeah yeah I want to go back um no yeah I think that that could be interesting I think like generally in food right now there's lots of interesting uh, stories to be said about, you know, previously 
um, very powerful like institutions that are now less powerful. Like Pret is definitely an example of this. It kind of shows you how, you know, you assume that something is just going to be around forever or, or that it has enough money to kind of just, you know, outlast anything. But then obviously coronavirus has, has changed a lot of that. So yeah, I think a lot of our, our stories are focusing on that kind of stuff now. So maybe, yeah, it should I should think about doing another piece on Pret. Phoebe, can we rewind a bit to your entry to journalism? Um, working for a creative tourist in Manchester, how did it come about? Like, take us take us back to the beginning for yourself. So yeah, I guess I was in Manchester because I I went to uni in Manchester. Um, so I did English um, at uni, and then I was really lucky actually because we had a very good careers department at the university. Um, so basically, in my my final year, I think I. I decided that I wanted to be a journalist. Um, so I, I just tried to do as many kind of internships as I could um, in that final year um, and the year previous, actually, because that's that's when I interned at Vice. Um, but then, yeah, when I was kind of coming to the end of third year, I, I went to the career service and they told me about this. Um, it was like kind of like a graduate program that they'd set up with lots of like local businesses um, to kind of just put their graduates into um like short-term roles with them. Um, so one of them was this editorial assistant role with um, this like arts and culture website called Creative Tourist. Um, so I applied for that and was really lucky enough to get that. Um, so that was, yeah, I feel like I'm quite rare and quite lucky to have been able to go kind of straight from graduating into this editorial assistant role. Um, and it was great, really. Like it was a really small team. Um, it was just me and I think two editors and then um they had a couple of freelancers as well that they worked with um and my editor there um Susie Stubbs was just really really great and you know talking before about having a good editor and having someone be patient with you that's definitely what she did to me um so she would just you know every time I wrote something she would print it out and really go through in a very detailed way why my writing was terrible but also in a very kind way so it, it never felt discouraging it was just like you just don't need to do this like make sure you don't I don't know, use the passive voice or whatever I was doing. Um, so yeah, that was kind of like my my entry point um, into journalism. And yeah, whilst I was working there, I was trying to start doing a bit of freelance writing as well. So having had that connection with Vice, you know, doing the internship a, a few years before, I, I was pitching stuff to them, um, pitching stuff to people like Dazed and Confused and kind of Clash magazine, like lots of lots of those kind of websites that are also very open to new writers. So yeah, that was kind of like my first journalism role. Um, and that's what I was doing at the time. You mentioned it being a bit of a minefield for people who are entering journalism, sort of not knowing what, how to get started. How did you make those sort of first approaches to outlets? And, and how did you learn to pitch? Was it just sort of a sort of trial and error thing? Yeah, I think it definitely was a trial and error thing. I think it was really helpful because I was working in that editorial assistant role. And I had done, you know, the, the internship advice and I'd done like a week at the Guardian as well. And I think I did a week at NME too. So I had like an awareness of, you know, what, what makes a story and like, you know, what the mechanics are of like putting together an idea for a story. Um, but still it was a lot of like emails being sent off and, and nobody replying and just wondering what I was doing wrong. Um, so that definitely happened. Um, but I think I really learned like, the importance of having a, a unique voice or like covering something that other people aren't covering. Um, and I think being in Manchester at that time kind of gave me some of that because obviously a lot of journalism is based in London, but the fact that I was in Manchester 
I just immediately had like a different angle to my stories. Like there was something there that maybe other writers didn't have. Um, and then strangely enough, after three months of doing my, um, doing the editorial assistant role in Manchester, I decided to move to Australia <laughs> for a year. Um, so that gave me kind of like another angle as well. Um, and I think that's really when I started freelancing more, kind of more seriously, because I was able to write for like UK publications, but have this Australian angle. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of helped as well, I think. Um, but yeah, lots, lots of trial and error too. As you know, it's a rule of the show that we always ask about money and how it interfaces people's mm. writing lives. So when you were making your way, doing these early jobs and, and freelancing and stuff, how did you kind of piece together a living? Yeah, it's a really important question. So I worked in this editorial assistant role. I think it was only a part-time role. So I feel like it was like three or four days a week. Um, and that obviously wasn't enough to live off. I can't remember exactly what I was getting paid, but it definitely wasn't enough. Um, so I did that. And then I also tried to supplement that with doing the freelance writing. Um, and then the summer before I'd got this job, so kind of the summer in between like graduating and getting this job, I'd basically just moved back in with my parents and worked in a call center in Peterborough, <laughs> which was not great, but obviously being able to work and, and live at home, I was very lucky to be able to live at home and obviously not have to pay rent, um, meant that I could kind of like have some savings as well, which helped. Um, and then also the cost of living in Manchester is nothing like living in London. Um, and I was still able to live in kind of like a student house. So yeah, there were lots of, lots of like factors there that really helped, I think, um, that might not have been possible if I decided to, I don't know, move straight to London after graduating and, and tried to, tried to start doing journalism here because obviously the cost of living is just really, really high. I'm from Manchester originally and I have friends that oh, can rent flats on their own for like half the price yeah. <laughs> of, yeah, of a it's London so bad. flat. Yeah, it's ridiculous. What precipitated the move to Australia? I don't know. I think it's quite an odd move now when I think back, but I think I just, because um, I'd lived in Manchester for, for three years, obviously at uni, and then I was doing this job, which I really loved and like I was really torn about whether I should leave or not but I think I just I kind of wanted to change really and I'd done like a study abroad um semester the year before and I'd met like people who I knew in Australia so there were there were kind of connections there already um and I wanted to go somewhere where you know everybody spoke English so that I could try and get internships writing in English um I'm sure there would have been other ways to do it but that was also some of my reasoning um yeah. And then I managed to like set up some internships, um, there as well. So that kind of pushed me to go. So I lived in Brisbane for a while and I worked for this, well, I did an internship for this music magazine, um, and then, uh, ran out of money and I was a copywriter for, um, this company that sold solar panels. Um, so I did lots of weird stuff kind of alongside doing, um, doing like the freelance writing as well. Can we talk about munchies um, and your mm. sort of way in device through that and maybe a bit about kind of you know, food writing in general, which is an area which we've had, we've had uh, Jay Rayner on, but also it seems that there's an area where there's quite a lot of kind of interesting innovation going on with food bloggers and, and stuff like that. What was your, your experience with that? Yeah, yeah, I think that that really came about, um, like I was saying, when I moved to Australia and I suddenly had this kind of new angle. Um, so yeah, I was in Australia and I think the time when I was there kind of seemed to coincide with the the real trend for, you know, suddenly everybody was really into eating out and really into coffee. And obviously in Australia, that culture is even more 
um, like even stronger, like that there's a really big culture for, for food and, and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, when I was living, um, in Brisbane and then I lived in Sydney for a while as well, like there, there just seemed to be so many food stories presenting themselves to me. And there were also lots of like local food blogs there that would also commission me to write. So I kind of fell into food writing that way and then realized whilst I was doing it, that there were so many, so many ways to write about food, you know, it would, it wouldn't just be like a restaurant review. Um, so that kind of took me to munchies really just by pitching freelance ideas, um, from Australia. I think one of the first ones I did for them was about this cafe that, um, they, uh, it was basically like a pay as you feel cafe. So you could kind of go along and they would, it was run by volunteers and you could pay whatever you felt the meal was worth. So the whole idea is kind of like fostering community and, and giving people who maybe don't have as much money a chance to have a hot meal. Um, so yeah, that was a really fun story to do because I kind of interviewed the founders and things like that. And yeah, I kind of created that relationship with the editors at Munchies and from there wrote quite a few other stories for them as well. Um, so then when I eventually decided to come back to the UK and the, the Munchies editor role was open, I already had that relationship there. So, um, kind of applied for the job and was really lucky to get the job. So yeah, I think that it kind of shows how freelancing can be really good to develop those relationships too. I noticed that on the Munchies sort of section of the website, there's obviously articles, but there's also videos and sort of interactive things about food. Do you think there's an expectation with the sort of next crop of journalists coming through to have those sort of multimedia skills alongside writing? Or do you think it's still fairly sort of siloed? I think it's definitely helpful. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I still think of myself as, you know, purely editorial, even though I have, um, you know, I've helped uh, do production on some Munchies videos before. And, you know, I'm always interested in like other ways to kind of bring our stories to life. Um, But yeah, I think it's helpful to to be able to at least know, you know, what goes into making a video or what goes into producing like a podcast or like would this story work better as, I don't know, would it work better on like Instagram stories instead of as a written piece? Like I think it's really useful to have all of those skills kind of, you know, at least an awareness of them as a journalist. But I don't know, I think I think the most important thing if you kind of want to have this kind of role is it's more important just to have an idea of, you know, how to tell a story, like what makes a good story, how you construct a narrative. Like those are kind of the core things that, you know, if you've got those down, then you can apply that to making a short film or, you know, thinking about how to include photography into a a written article in an interesting way. Like, I think that's, that's the most important thing. A few years ago, there was a lot of coverage this was sort of during the broader me too movement but about um vice and the non-traditional is it non-traditional workplace clause and so forth mm. um has that does that still exist or has and has there been a kind of change in the i suppose the culture of the organization in the time that that you've been there yeah the the non-traditional workplace clause doesn't exist anymore um and definitely the yeah the me too kind of allegations and and the information that came out was obviously really like not a great time for anyone at vice um, and I think the, the company has committed to like a lot of changes since then. And, um, you know, the workplace culture is now definitely different to how it was um, in the time that was described in in the New York Times article and in the other pieces that kind of came out. Um, so, yeah, I think, think the workplace culture is definitely improving advice. Like we have um, a really strong union on the um, for the editorial team and the production team, which has been really great to see that grow in the last year or so. Um, and that's definitely I know that's made me feel really like yeah, really connected with my colleagues and really supported by the people I work with. 
Um, and it's hopefully something that we can kind of like grow a bit more in the coming years as well. Um, but yeah, that's, that's obviously something that's like part of Vice's history too. So yeah, that's, that's something that we have to be aware of. What's the, um, sort of vague or as, as, as your best guess, um, gender balance advice? Um, I think it is, I don't actually know the the numbers, but I think it is pretty even. Um, I don't know, just thinking about the editorial team, I feel like it's, it's quite even. Um, but yeah, I don't have the exact numbers to hand. And when you mentioned the the work experience program you had before, obviously that's been kind of disrupted by COVID. But when that was happening before, did you pay people? And how kind of formalized was that? Were you something you applied for? Was it like people's mates and relatives being being brought in? Um, yeah, it definitely wasn't um, kind of a, a friends and relatives thing. It would be something that everybody, to my knowledge, who came in sent an email in, you know, asking about work experience, and it wasn't somebody that we knew beforehand. Um, so it was very much like open to to anyone. Um, so in terms of how we paid people, so when we did kind of the longer three month internships, um, so those would be paid positions. Um, I don't know the exact um, amount that people were paid, but they, they were paid. And then for the shorter placements, um, so like one or two weeks, um, because that, that was just a, a work experience placement and not considered like an internship and um, people would be reimbursed for like um you know food costs and travel costs um so that's how how those schemes worked before um we're, we're trying to think of ways to kind of support people like during covid as well and we're we're in talks to kind of set up a, a mentor mentoring kind of scheme with one of the unis we work with um but yeah right now it's really hard to to think of a way to make an internship or a work experience placement work for for people when we're all kind of on Google Hangouts together. So it's it's a bit hard at the moment, but it's definitely something that, that we want to do in the future, hopefully, if things go back to normal or if we can figure out another way to do it. Yeah, I think onboarding is one of those things that's really difficult to do remotely. Mm, um, yeah. As we're sort of coming towards the end of our time almost, um, could you tell us a bit about how you moved from Munchies to your current role? Was it Was it one step or was there a few sort of steps in between? So, yeah, I'd been in my Munchies role for, I think, about three or four years. Um, And then internally, there were a couple of kind of restructures um, with how the team was kind of managed and and kind of laid out. Um, So the managing editor role became available um, and it was something I applied for. And obviously it it was a bit of a promotion, but yeah, I I was accepted for that. So that's so it wasn't too many steps in that sense. but I had kind of been advised for a number of years then and, and had been doing lots of different stuff on munchies. So I feel like I could have, you know, I could like demonstrate things that I'd done just working on this one vertical that could kind of move into vice more broadly. Um, but yeah, it's been really fun to kind of move into the wider vice team um, while still like getting to commission food stuff as well. And as a final question, where would you like to go from here? What are your ambitions for your writing and also for, you know, executive positions and stuff like that? I don't know. I'm always really stumped by the the five years from now question. I feel like I have a really like limited um, imagination, but I don't know. I'm, I'm really like happy in my role now. And I feel like we're doing really interesting stuff um, on Vice. I guess I'd like to, I don't know. I'd like to think of ways to grow the team. Um, it'll be really exciting to get more people on board. Although obviously it's, it's hard like in any journalism job, but, but especially in like the COVID climate. Um, but yeah, I'd like to see kind of like, yeah, more people, um, joining the team and potentially like exploring that area but 
and doing more writing too. That's definitely on my list as well. Well, thank you so much for your time, Phoebe. This has been very informative and um, all the best with all your ongoing endeavours. Great. Thanks so much. Cheers, Phoebe. Hello, it's us again. Uh, Simon, what did you make of our interview with Phoebe? I really enjoyed it. It was another one we did remotely, but I think touch wood that we're finally getting the hang of some of the technology. So hopefully it should it should sound a bit clearer. Than... <laughs> this might be where Katie butts in and is like, no, it's yeah. horrible. The audio is horrible. <laughs> I mean, it's entirely possible that we, yeah, we've recorded something that's completely unusable, but you know, small steps. Um, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. I mean, I think it's a site that kind of has a lot of you know, mythos attached to it and interesting to dig beneath a bit to see to see what it's like working there. I thought the thing she was saying about, and as you mentioned as well, like how difficult it is just bringing in, okay, you can you can bring in commission new writers, but in terms of just bringing in new people to a workplace during COVID, like I, th- I think that's a huge issue and one that is obviously only only like really raising its head a bit. What did you think? Definitely. I mean, on that issue, not being in an office and being able to ask the sort of minor questions that would be so easily sorted in 10 seconds, but sort of having to work up the courage to email someone about it. Um, I can't imagine how difficult that would be. But yeah, I really enjoyed talking to Phoebe. I thought she um, dealt with all of our sort of questions about money and rates and the vice culture very graciously. And I enjoyed that prep piece as someone who is a devotee of their coconut lattes. Really? Yeah. Do you not find it slightly sort of sickly? I like the sugar, that's the point. And also then I can convince myself I'm being healthy because it's non-dairy milk. I mean, everyone knows that a vanilla latte is basically quite a dirty drink. But I just think that a coconut latte is like... Oh, it's got like 100 grams of sugar in it. Yeah, it's really sugary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like wrapping the same experience in a sort of veneer of healthfulness. Rachel, I saw that you, you, you brought up your Manchester origins, just in case they weren't clear from your broad Manchester accent as well. <laughs> I held off for at least 30 seconds before I mentioned it. No, it's more, it's more, more like sort of sort of 30 minutes, actually. <laughs> and I, I do think, I mean, Phoebe reached out to us, actually, saying, suggesting she'd like to come on the show. And I do think that she's clearly, and, and they institutionally have made a, a sort of genuine investment to bringing on new people which I, and, and new voices and stuff, which I think is actually very admirable. And I think the lessons were the same, though. You have to, if you're working anywhere you have to do all the reading and all the research you know it's the same as any other workplace so in some ways I thought that was quite quite a valuable lesson yeah yeah we didn't ask how old she was we should have asked maybe is she past like is she past is she what? Older than 30? <laughs> past the, the age where you have to be taken outside and like <laughs> sent sent to the knackers yard advice no I'm, um, I'm glad we didn't I think that's sort of crossing some sort of some sort of Rubicon. Yeah, there would have been a slight, a slight badge. I did, I did though know this woman who's no longer in London, but she was working at Vice and she was 29 and, and genuinely like somewhat apprehensive about what was going to happen when she like went, went over the hill. But, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure they're welcome to it all. I kind of wanted to know like who was the Scott Mills of Vice? Like, you know, the guy who's like been there for a very long time doing sort of youth-focused, youth-focused content. But again, maybe best we didn't ask that. I think, I think also... You know, she couldn't have outed her colleagues. <laughs> I think that would that would make the return to the office quite awkward. So, yeah, yeah. I told sure. everyone on this podcast that you were over the hill. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> you're too you're too old. Maybe Vice should do like an old people vertical though. Yeah, um, Let's see if they take that suggestion on board. <laughs> yeah, don't, ignore us, please, there, Phoebe. Um, I thought it was a really interesting episode and, and great to have her on. Um, Rachel, what have you been up to? You're currently in um, 
Can we can we say where you are? Yeah, I'm not a sort of undercover agent. Um, I'm in Spain on annual leave, which you know involves just reading and sitting by the pool. I'm enjoying it a lot. That is a, that is quite well, not the pool, but but just reading or watching things is quite is a central facet of your your professional activities. I'm actually reading the um, Lovecraft Country novel. Some of our listeners may be aware of the HBO adaptation of it on TV at the moment, because um, I'm hoping to profile the screenwriter. Okay. Um, how about you, Simon? What have you been up to? You've been sort of traversing the British Isles. I know, my grand tour. Well, I've escaped the Premier Inn. I was in a Premier Inn deep in the British countryside on a on a glamorous magazine assignment, which I've now returned from. But then I had to work all weekend or something else. I'm just really exhausted. And I think I find but what is very challenging being a freelancer is, is sometimes having to try and do three different things at once. So like I, I was doing that story. So I was out reporting, which involved sort of standing in fields, looking at tractors. And then I was writing a draft for this 1843 piece and then doing a, a bit of copywriting work and stuff, which is fine. But just it just meant you were like getting up at six every morning to like do something quite difficult and convoluted then you know i find like there is a sort of emotional labor cost to reporting because it's like you're you're on all the time you know you're with people and and stuff like that so i haven't had all of today off but i've had the morning off so i went for a, a sort of bimble through brockwell park and some brunch well, well i tried to get some brunch but all the brunchries were closed so i got sort of brunchries is that the official term <laughs> yeah there, there are numerous ones in in my corner of south london so that was good and then I'm sort of back at work tomorrow. So yeah, and I think things are good, but I just feel like I'm um, I'm just juggling a lot of balls at the moment. Mm. What's going on with your course, by the way? Have you had more stuff for that? Uh, that's ticking along, and I am doing some work for that while I'm on holiday, but it's very enjoyable, so I don't mind. Excellent. Well, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Katie Lee. Our graphic design is by James Edgar and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.